I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we'll be discussing the brutal noir thriller You Were Never Really Here, as well as hearing from the film's writer-director, Lynn Ramsey. And really here with me this week is regular contributor Kelly Powell. Hello. And irregular contributor Campbell A. Campbell. Hello. Welcome to your first Curzon Podcast. Thrilled to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, so before we get into the film and before we hear from Lynn Ramsey, we have an email from Min Kayu Kim who says, I finally saw Lady Bird today with a friend to whom I had promised that I would wait until she got back to London for a weekend from uni. We both just absolutely loved it. And as students, Lady Bird's leaving for college hit home particularly hard. And at the end, after a few sniffles, we both excused each other to call our respective mothers. Later, I walked my friend back to Waterloo, where I waved her off feeling much like Laurie Metcalf's character at the airport, and listened to your podcast on the way home as consolation. I've been a regular listener for some time, but today it felt extra relevant and poignant, so thank you guys. And he has wants to shout out to his dear pal Sophia, who didn't have Wi-Fi on the train to listen as well, apparently. Thank you very much for reaching out to us, men. Much appreciated. And as ever, if you do want to send us a review for us to read out on next week's show of the film we're discussing this week or a film we've discussed in the past, please do so to podcast at curzon.com and we'll read out your review on next week's show. So, based on the novel by Jonathan Ames, You Were Never Really Here stars Joaquin Phoenix as Joe, a man hired to rescue a young girl from a seedy criminal underworld. And despite having only made four feature films, Lynn Ramsey has become one of the most recognisable auteurs working today. So we sent our very own Jake Cunningham to speak to her last week. So we're very excited to welcome Lynn Ramsey onto the Curzon Film Podcast. You're doing all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. So this is actually very special for me to sit down and talk to you today because the first film that I studied uh, after I left school just at Sixth Form College was Morven Cutter. Wow, that's cool. That's great. I haven't seen it for years and um, I was doing a... uh, I think up in Glasgow Film Festival with Edith Bowman about music and um, the... There was a clip of it, and it just made me want to watch the film. And then I saw Samantha Morton last night. She came to the screening, you know, because she's so amazing in that film. And so it was a really special experience that. Um, so I'm glad that that's, that's yeah. great. You know, like for me, that's like a really significant part of my education because it was the first time that someone kind of told me that you can think of a film as being more than just something that you can just watch so being able to sit here and talk to you (laughs) uh, is really lovely so that was that film was an education for me and I wonder in that time how how you've been educated by your own films like over that what is it 15 20 20 years years now like what what Uh, have you learned over that time that you've brought or what have you brought from Morven Keller that you found in you were never really here maybe well you know it's I started doing shorts when I was pretty young, you know, and, you know, um, Morven Calera, it was an amazing experience, like, uh, and I remember we shot, because I've shot all my films in film, you know, like, apart from this one, this is digital, but we made it, I think we, you know, gave it, a, I did a lot of tests in this to, but, it's, you know, it's real discipline shooting in film, you know, like, you don't, you can't just run the camera for ages, you know, it's like, that's film stock, it's mm. like, um, and that's things money. are, yeah, it's money, <laughs> you know, and I remember in Morven Calera, it was like, 
the producer sort of sweating in the corner, you know, like, because it was really hard to cut in that film because she was so mesmeric. And I think there's some similarity between Joachim and Sam. You know, they're very instinctive, like, you know, I always talk to my actors during prep, but, like, the ones I've worked with, like John C. Reilly, Tilda, Asia, Sam, you know, They've always like once we, we kind of when it when it clicks, you know, and we're jamming. It's not we don't do rehearsals. It's like it's much more. They just go inside the characters, you know. Um, and he's it was it was so exciting to watch him. I mean, we'd hardly any time to shoot, and it was like I really had the feeling of what he's what's he going to do next, which I really wanted in the film. Um, so one minute it could be really blackly funny, funny, and the next minute he. It, and I remember there was one shot he was walking like it's after there's a water scene and he, he just it's just a shot where he's walking towards camera and it was like hell is coming you know <laughs> it was like the demon you know it was like so it was it was just exciting for the crew and I to watch this like it was it was a really young crew a lot of them were ex NYU students and ex Columbia students and some of them were directors which I didn't know at the beginning and. Um, the script supervisor was a director, the AD was a scriptwriter, and like they were, they were excited by the film and that really buoyed me up as well because like, it was a brutal shoot. It was like, you don't want to be shooting in the summer in New York. It's it's like horrendous. That's why everyone leaves, you know, yeah. to go to, you know, the Hamptons yeah. or whatever, you know. And it was, uh, as I understand, a pretty brutal pre-production as well from when you actually found out you're going to be shooting in August. There's yeah. a, only a little bit of time from yeah. when Joaquin agreed. Is that right? That's right. I mean, it was a small... I mean, luckily we had this really quite... I mean, there was this... The, the guy that was financing the film really was one of those guys that could just say, right, like, you can go ahead. You know I mean? You don't always get that opportunity. So thanks to Pascal Cochot, who I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Um, Cochot, I think. Yeah, um, um, he... He was able to say, yeah, if you want to do it, you can do it now, you know, and uh, Joaquin said, yes, but he had another film, and then it was like, or do you wait a year? And I'm like, well, this is a no-brainer, like, it's Joaquin, I'm doing it, you know, mm -hmm. and I think the prep that Tom and I, the DP, and Tim Grimes, the production designer, and Paul Davis, especially the sound designer, and Johnny, like, they'd done, because the scripts had a lot of images and sound written in, um, you know, had really helped because I don't think I'd been I would have been able to do it in that time otherwise. You mm. know, like because Tom knew it like the back of his hand. Paul knew it really well. You know, like so the sounds and the, the, a lot of things were kind of prepped when, when I was writing the script. You know. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to ask yeah. about that because I think um, your relationship with Tom Townend is quite yeah. interesting with working with cinematography right at the writing stage almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So could you go into what that process is like? Or did he come and write with you? Or was he yeah. like there with a the camera? <laughs> uh, no, it would be, I think every now and again, I was living in Greece and Santorini, like um, at the time. And every now and again, I'd be like, right, I got to this place. And so he'd come and we'd talk about it. And then, you know, I'd kind of like, you know, that would spin off other ideas, you know? So it was a kind of visual co-writing in a way, you know, like a visual writing mm. kind of thing. I, I, and I've known him for like 25 years. He operated Morvin Caller, you know, like he shot the Stellas and Ratcatcher. And um, so there's a kind of shorthand with him where like he thinks like a camera, you know, you can go, you, there's a way that I think he can think in economy images and he knows he's, you know, he's a real um, cinephile as well. So sometimes he says films I don't even know what he's talking about you know what I mean like he's a smart ass you know um, but in, a, in the greatest possible way um, but I think that was a real asset and something like this when you have no time it's like um, I, ha I hadn't worked with him for a, for a while and I worked with some I've been really lucky with the DPs like Alvin Kukler did Ratcatch and Morvan Caller and he's amazing and now you know, he's the biggest DP one of the biggest DPs in the world but Ratcatcher was his first feature uh, Tom was a still did stills in that Tom you know, like operated Morvin. I worked with Seamus McGarvey, who's an amazing, um, like huge DP as well. And and then da Daddy's Conji, I almost worked with, and mm -hmm. just, and, and Natasha Breyer as well, this Argentinian DP who shot this short film called The Swimmer for me was just phenomenal. So everyone brings a different flavour yeah. to to different pieces. But I think with this particular film, it was it was um, Tom knew how strongly I felt about film and. Like we did a lot of tests, and you know, because I hadn't shot digital before, and and that when I saw what he was doing in the grades, I was like, yeah, he's really, he really got, he, he got the film right from early on. Yeah. 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 Um. So looking um more to the film as a whole, 
you uh, and Everly here kind of looks at the character of the the lone ex-cop. He's on a hunt for justice. It's an area that's been pretty well covered in the film before. What about that type of character interests you? And I suppose more importantly, where did you see your angle on that character? Well, I always hate seeing the synopsis of this film. I mean, yeah. I think other people write these things and I'm like, what? You know, because it's a very experiential film. It's like kind of hard to describe and that's why I make films probably, mm. you know. Um but on paper, yeah, you, you know, it, it's a, you know, novella is, I mean, it's really, it's, he's a great writer, Jonathan Ames, like, you know, he can write comedy, he wrote this book called I Pass Light Night that's a bit like Holton Caulfield, like, gone more wrong, you know, mm. later on, he knows New York, this, like, really well, it's like, it's a really authentic kind of voice in New York, you know, as well, and so... He was he knew he was writing a pulpy B novel, but he can't really do that either because it's <laughs> such like there's there's something in the way he writes that that never is that. Um, and you know, I said to him, I'm going to do my own thing with it, and he was like totally up for that. And he said, all I want is that it feels like the the way you felt so compelled. Like I read it in ninety minutes probably or a couple hours, and mm. do you know what I mean? Like um, and, and um how compelling it felt he just you know as long as it's got that feeling that you felt when you read it and I was like yeah that's what I want to um but it was really the character of Joe that was interesting to me it was like the that it's a kind of man in midlife crisis a man like in a spiral and you know his sanity's like you know he's kind of like he's going to seed a bit you know like Mm. there was everything that was against the kind of types of this trope he's not like the six-pack guy he's not the knight he can hardly save himself you know what I mean like you know rather than anyone else and I think that we're all the, all the ingredients were there for a really really interesting character that, that is like um, not the the one you're used to seeing in a, a film like this you know yeah definitely and so we talked about you uh, collaborated Tom and uh, the writer Jonathan Ames there looking at the music which is Johnny Greenwood audiences listening to this are lucky enough to go to the cinema and be able to hear two Johnny Greenwood scores <laughs> uh, at once which is a, a pretty exciting prospect it, it, no it is I mean like, especially because they're so different yeah. which just shows you how talented he is I mean but I, you know because um, Johnny's still a, you know he's such He's so like a kid, you know, like a child in music. He's like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it excites him so much. And, um, you know, he's a really modest guy as well. And, you know, I sent him a rough cut of Kevin. Um, and that's how that's, that relationship started. And he got back really quickly. And he was like, this film really scares me. And I don't know why, but I just, you know, I'm really into it. And it sort of started from there. And, um, and then this one, yeah, I sent him the scripts, um, but he, we didn't know it was going to go so fast, you mm. know. So I was like, oh, maybe I'm making it, and or you know, I'm still working in the ends, and um, which I was. Um, and um, and then he was in tour with Radiohead, so I was like, oh, oh no, I, you know, I thought I'd like, I, I don't know if he, he didn't know if he could do it, you know. But we just kind of figured out a way, you know, and it was more remotely than than we'd done Kevin. But strangely, it was just like I was giving him like in chronological order. The reels, you mm. know. So he's like, "What's going to happen? You know, where's it going to go? You know." And it kind of had had him in tenor hooks, I think, a bit as well. Where was this character going? And it, and then the score became a bit like the character. Like you think you're in one thing, and it goes somewhere else, and it's like it, then it implodes a bit and comes yeah. back. You know, well, it's so. really you go on a really surprising journey with the music because there are uh, maybe near the beginning you think you're in a regular kind of Johnny Greenwoody world that you yeah. were used to hearing of his yeah. kind of music, and then these kind of synth waves come in and it's just it's the most lush beautiful thing yeah yeah no it really his score became joe you know uh and the first like kind of like um piece of score in the film like defines joe as a character it's slightly you know it's him walking down a corridor and he's like you know it's really ominous and then it's all out of whack you know and then it goes somewhere much more that you think all right i'm in a thriller, a genre, and then it smashes it up, and then it comes back. It's just like I can't, I can't even describe it. But every time the editor and I got our track, because he doesn't um, score to picture, which I find really interesting, because what happens? Because I start my soundtrack really early. I start, I start working in sound. I'll do a cut, then I'll work in sound, then I'll cut. Use what I've learned about sound to recut. You know, mm. like so rather than do it like the sound all comes at the end. So were you temp you know, tracking? We, I was pre-mix. I was we bought this mixing desk, which met like in LA where I was working, like which sounds all glamorous, but it was, and it was like uh, the editor and I were in his back bedroom or something, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and, and I was like, let's should we try and mix it as we go? And we bought some sort of mixing desk off the computer, like off the internet, and it was like his computer completely died and he lost all his work. So it was like completely horrific, you know, all well, because of this stupid mixing desk. But right from the beginning, it was like um, we were working on the sound, you know, and then Johnny and Johnny would send then Johnny would send these tracks, and the editor and I were almost like running up and down the corridors <laughs> of the cutting room, you know, like you know, jumping for joy. We were just like we were so astounded by some of it, and then we cut to his music mm. rather than the you know he would cut to our picture. Yeah, do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. So it was really like. A, it, it was always like a kind of like you're like a birthday every time yeah. you got like some like something sent to That's you. It. I think you know? Paul Thomas Anderson had the same thing. He just on yeah. a different time zone wake up in the morning and there's an email from yeah. Johnny Greenwood. There's not much better to receive. No, <laughs> no, it was like it was like you're just super excited to open this present you get. You know, like and it was, so th- those were those days where the, the ke- became some audio files came. Mm. Joe and I were always really, really excited. And then that really informed the cut as well, you know. So it was a really organic thing with the sounds and the music and then the sound design as well, you know. Um, that was another layer mm. that, that was happening really early on. Yeah. And luckily we had Graeme Stewart, who was a, you know, Johnny's engineer, and he, he, he was music editing on this as well. And so he knew the tracks inside out as well. And um, so having Graeme as well was really key to mm. this, yeah. And... Um I think I I didn't see the the what I'm sure will go down as the can cut of yeah, this film. Yeah. Um, but I understand I it's the, the sound is probably the the biggest difference. Is that right from what people might have seen ten months ago? Well, it was you know I felt a little bit. It was a catch twenty two can you know because it was it was great. I mean don't get me wrong, like but we the, the script was like it was the year before that the script Amazon bought the script and can like and and that was great and everything and they really liked it and stuff and that but there was no way on earth I thought the next year it can I be there you mm. know um and it's such an honor to get and it can but I was like I was just working away in the film I think uh, Pascal felt like the film was getting in quite good shape and must have just shown them mm. it you know just to see what they thought and they were like we want it and, and it but it had like storyboards in it and you know like it wasn't mixed and so I had, and there was there was two additional days I, sh- I, sh- I put aside that because there's no tank in New mm. York to do certain stuff and um, and then suddenly I had to prep a shoot shoot it cut it mix it and do that before can you know but the saving grace was I didn't get nervous about can because yeah. I was so yeah. I was too exhausted I mean you can I mean I was exhausted when I was there I could hurt I mean it was just like twenty four seven you know. Yeah. Um, but then suddenly you're in this audience with like thousands of people and it's an amazing sound system. And um, I could feel the audience were kind of going with it. Um, but we mixed the film in five days. I mean, I thought I'd, I had post-traumatic stress because of the, <laughs> the gunshots again and again and again. I had to go outside sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, like, because we were, we were really experimenting with the sound. But the brilliant thing is that we got a pre-mix. Like, you don't normally get a two, two, two goes at a mix, mm. you know. Um, but then everyone liked it after can, so it was like I was kind of promised more cutting time, and it was like no, but everyone loves it, and I'm like, nah, I have to. <laughs> like this, some of the stuff we shot later needs finessed, you know. Yeah. Um, so that that was that that I thought we'd have more cutting time, but in the end we 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 just made it work, and um, and we spent most of the time in the mix and in the music, yeah. Mm. All right. Um, So we've probably got time for one last question. Um, So I read an interview the other day that uh, you said they won't ask you to do Batman, but you could. (laughs) So I've got to ask, if you could pick your Batman, who would you cast? Oh, I've got to say, I don't know. Well, Joker, I know. (laughs) I don't know. I'll keep it under wraps for now. I I think Wacky Manette, anything, and there's a few others that I think, you know... um, not, I think I wouldn't go the obvious route, put it that way, you know. It's hard to say, you know, but, you know, I remember, like, I loved Alan Moore's work when I was a kid and, um, like, my boyfriend at the time when I was, you know, a teenager was really into, you know, like, everything. Like, his room was so full of comic books, you couldn't, you had to have a, it was a special path to walk. So he got me The Dark Knight and uh, what, The Watchmen, the original editions, and um, my mum... Years later, I said, "Where are they?" She chucked them out. They're probably worth a fortune. Yeah. But but yeah, no, it's like 
sometimes like things in articles are slightly taken out of context and stuff like that. But but yeah, I I think if you've got you can do the movie in your way, and it, it would be interesting, you know. Like um, and some people have said said this film has a kind of graphic novel mm. type of yeah, you know I like can totally rhythm. See that. But maybe that was influenced by sort of like reading those things when yeah. I was a kid and stuff, you know. Brilliant. Yeah. Then Ramsey, thanks so much. <laughs> Cheers. But whacking Phoenix and anything. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, so that was Jake speaking to writer and director of You Were Never Really Here, Lynn Ramsey. So we quickly went over the plot just before the interview there. Um, it sounds very conventional when you say it out loud. I mean, it feels like something that could very easily star Liam Neeson, be produced by Luc Besson, it could be a Taken sequel or something. <laughs> but why isn't this that film? Because hmm, of Lynn Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> the Ramsey effect, baby. Mm, right? <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all in her style in that she's kind of, she's always had like this very keen eye for photography in her films. And with uh, You Were Never Really Here, it kind of bleeds through here where it's very much about building character through image and editing rather than it is necessarily about a twisty noir mm. plot. Mm. Or Seems whatever. like plot kind of secondary to what she's trying to do. In, in I think in all of her films, really. It's, it's more, um, we were speaking about this earlier, but um, she really wants to sort of delve into character and mm. uh, her films are, are very, very, you know, they're character studies, they're very specific to character what they're going through, their their point of view. It feels like this whole film is, you know, she puts us into the mindset of Joe um, and what the world sort of looks like from his perspective. Mm. Um, and it sort of like throws you in the deep end and makes you, you know, scramble to make sense of the world just like Joe sort of does, you know, yeah. his, his trauma coming to, to bear. From uh, what I understand, the book is very much this kind of hard-boiled noir thriller about a kind of hitman sent off to a mission and there's all this political intrigue about these conspiracy and all these uh, plot twists and turns and um, I overheard someone who was at the screening we were at yesterday for this film talking about how in the book the political subplot is far more prevalent and it goes into far more detail about the, the politician character in the book mm. and I think Lynn Ramsey isn't as interested in the plot as perhaps the person reading the book might be, she's more interested about how do we look at the world, a world where this thing would happen, and how do we look at a character who would do the things that he does in the book? Yeah, as with like, as you and Kelly have said, like uh, a lot of Ramsey's work is very concerned with kind of character and trauma. And um, the, the funny thing is, that, like with a lot of the plot of her films, they just kind of serve as these backdrops into which she then explores these characters' psyches. So, like the um, the political kind of backdrop kind of just like feeds into this kind of like creeping yeah. paranoia that you kind of feel with all of these flashing images of like whatever past uh violence that joe has experienced um we only catch glimpses so like the more it kind of descends into this kind of twisty yeah kind of noir plot the more we kind of get into his shoes as we kind of feel increasingly paranoid about this stuff mm. and she's just she's such a master of just kind of building this kind of visceral reaction just through leaving us to observe these images yeah yeah i really like that as well uh that she doesn't spoon feed at all you know it's it's her films are are like i mean it's been said before but they are like visual poetry you know she puts the images there i mean it's just it unfolds as as she wants it to and she doesn't spoon feed anything to you she wants you to work it out um and you put it together the way that you you need to read it Mm. you know like uh 
and that kind of makes it more engaging um, and makes it more of like a personal cinema going experience i think and even joe's background and so joe is uh, this working phoenix character who from the off we know i think the best way to describe joe is someone who's not okay <laughs> in not any okay level in any, any level way, yeah. um and even even the kind of the context of why he's he the, the trauma he suffered mm. it's stuff we have seen before in films you know he he was in the army he was an fbi agent he was from an abusive um family mm. but she doesn't spell it out for you i mean some of these are told in like really quick shots that mm. you almost miss i think you could very easily miss the fact that he was in the fbi yeah, I think you could watch the film and pay a, a lot of attention to it, and you that could just well because it's not pass uh, yeah, you by. exactly misusing the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's not important, right? It's not important for plot. It's not important. Yeah. It's more. It's more of like these are things that are swimming yeah. around in his head from past experience, and they sort of come to the come to fruition as memory does. You know, sort mm. of subconsciously, mm. it's all there, and he acts it comes up in moments that he doesn't want it to or expect it to. Um, and that's sort of like trauma, right? Yeah. So like comes up in fragment. It's it's fragmented and compartmentalized in his mind, and that's the way that she kind of visually represents it to us. You know, fragments of the of past trauma that like he's dealing with, and we have to deal with the, the visual assault of that, just as he kind of does. You know. I love like like the most important kind of thing about the film is that the trauma and pain is more real than any story that we can kind of throw at it. Like exactly. with his um, military background it's just dropped at us mm. in this it's like it's like a couple of shots yeah mm. or something and these images inform like how you feel about his character and the why and how isn't entirely important as like the fact that it, it did happen yeah. yeah and there's a lot of these moments where just a singular image will kind of be used to kind of build this character well she kind of leads us to this understanding but just by kind of showing us some stuff but not really pushing us toward not entirely pushing us towards a specific feeling but just pushing us towards a feeling yeah that's kind it's of me- kind of metaphorical in a way like the way that she uses detail the way that she drops back like she the the plastic bag thing i don't think it's a spoiler i think nah. it's not a spoiler it's, <laughs> it's very like, it's introduced early it's like yeah it's introduced early and it's it's basically like he's asphyxiating him he's it's like a sadomasochistic right like he's very he has many suicidal thoughts in this mm. film that we um, that we see that we see are yeah that yeah. Are, that are they are visually represented and i feel like she works in these kinds of like the details she uses are on purpose it's visually representing how he's suffocating under the weight of you know these memories yeah. and the trauma and it's like his fragmented psyche how these memories rush back further complicating the way that he sees the world I guess it even extends to his weapon of choice. We were talking about this earlier mm. with the hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, as as Ramsey does, uh, like kind of in close, close up. Mm-hmm. Close, close up? Um, <laughs> extreme uh, close up. In extreme close up. We see made in the USA, mm-hmm. like on the side on the side of this hammer. And it's a, again, it's another symbol of things that have happened to him in the past. We see other people yeah. using hammers. Mm-hmm. And again, that kind of just that poetic kind of matching of mm-hmm. these images shows us a lot about why Joe commits these violent acts in the way he does. Mm. And a lot of these just simple shot matches or um, just, a, just a quick cut to something, is it's crazy how informative that mm-hmm. Ramsey makes just these very simple techniques. She uses cinema so beautifully, man. Like she, like cinema language. She understands cinema language to the nth degree. I think it's pure cinema. It's... <laughs> there you go. I did air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a bit more about Joe and Joaquin Phoenix, who, you know, has quite a diverse career. I think it's fair to say, and mm-hmm. he, I think he chooses films very specifically, mm-hmm. very carefully. Um, why do you think he is the perfect Joe? I th- I think uh, with a lot of Ramsey's films, like how we've been saying about how she's kind of very focused on image rather than telling, she's picked the perfect actor in Joaquin Phoenix is that he always has these very transformative kind of physical roles where you could be, uh, like for example, he's out in, he's got another film in which 
he sports a giant beard, but um, just even from sna- like glimpses of that, you can see kind of that he carries himself yeah. in such a different way. And in this, he's just kind of this hulking, like monstrous presence. Yeah. Are you referring to Mary Magdalene, where he plays uh, yes, Jesus? I am. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the exact opposite <laughs> yeah. of Joe, <laughs> but still, still heavily bearded. But yeah, he, there's so much down to how he just kind of carries himself, and he has yeah. very he has very little dialogue as yeah. with a lot of other Ramsey protagonists. But what she does is she kind of just leaves us to infer a lot about them, not just from kind of images that she's showing us of like just kind of close up details of things, but also we are left to look at how like very closely at how these actors perform. So like Mm. a lot with a lot, a lot of her works are kind of defined by these very stone faced lead characters like Samantha Morton and Morvan Caller or um, James. Oh, James Gillespie, maybe? I think that's his name. The boy uh, who plays the lead in Ratcatcher. Mm. We're left a lot. We're left to infer a lot just from kind of micro expressions or just the way they move. Like I said before, with Joaquin just contort, almost contorting himself yeah. in these roles to get into this character, I think it's kind of a match made in heaven, really. <laughs> you feel, <laughs> yeah, hell, it's, I guess. It, and it's, it speaks to his character, right? It's like he doesn't say anything in life either. People just sort of. I noticed that with the exchange with the with the shopkeeper, mm. or whatever that was, um, I don't even I don't I don't even think I understand that relationship to be honest. What? I don't know why he was paying him. What was I think he there? was kind of a like a middleman. Yeah, for getting him his jobs. Oh, so he he's a he's um he's a management. <laughs> I'm not really sure what yeah, his job it? is, like what his what he would call himself, yeah. or like a business card or anything. It's like maybe a private. It's just like a kind of. Uh, um, you know, in these films, like these crime films, say, "Oh, he's a guy that'll get the job done," he's kind of thing. Net. He's a, a hired hand, yeah. yeah. Hired gun, hired gun, hired hammer. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, there's like he doesn't talk. He doesn't have to speak. You know, yeah. his physical presence, his presence says it all. You know, um, and people understand him based on that. Like characters within the story and us as the audience, we understand like and how he interacts within the frame. Um, and they were talking. I, I I watched a little bit of the of the Cannes conference, um, and they specifically spoke about his sort of physical presence yeah. and how they wanted him to be the antithesis of this Hollywood hero type mm. that's sort of like chiseled and like you know the 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 kind of um, protagonist that we would see in a Taken yeah. kind of a film, <laughs> um, and you know how he is huge. They wanted him to be big, physically, physically imposing. big and imposing, and have this sort. He's just kind of hulking through life um but he's still you know he's still vulnerable you can see that he's a he's broken his body is as broken as his mind really you know like Mm. and it's 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 failing him i think um which is interesting because he has to deal with sort of injuries the whole film he's an action hero yeah (laughs) Yeah, and he's he's covered in scars and bruises Mm. i mean the Mm. scars are horrible like they're really thick yeah yeah, exactly they look uncomfortable feels real yeah Yeah, exactly it's not like an elegant scar over no 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 (laughs) it's just no yeah and he he won um best actor at Cannes for this well yeah deservedly so i reckon i'd say yeah yeah he's phenomenal uh, in this film the walk this Um, film is so good guys So I think a lot of people are comparing the film to Taxi Driver and Joe is very much this kind of... Is it Paul Schrader that described Travis Bickle as God's lonely man or something along those lines? And I get the... I think Joe is very much a God's lonely man type character. Very internal. I don't think God exists in this world. (laughs) God is dead and Travis killed him. Yeah, exactly. Or Joe did. did. Yeah, Yeah. It was a team effort. Yeah, exactly. Now there's a movie. (laughs) You were never really talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so you've got this lonely protagonist who's very internal, very driven, Mm. very violent, a young girl in trouble. There's a lot of driving through the city, these like dark, murky city streets. You could very much have like Travis Bickle's monologue over some of the shots in this film where he's in the back of a cab looking at the city and mm. looking at the police, you know, quartering off a corner where a dead body is there or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I think the key difference is is that the way the film presents violence. It's um I feel that Joe is very much like a post shooting Travis Bickle. <laughs> where yeah. I'm whereas Taxi Driver kind of is building towards the radicalization mm. of 
who is ultimately a very hateful man, mm. um, just kind of f- like filled with kind of racism yeah. and mm. misogyny. Whereas uh, it seems that kind of Joe is haunted by and is very like stuck in a moment like post that shooting where he's like trying to escape, trying to escape kind of violence. And the film kind of matches that by just seemingly shrinking away from it. Like mm. it never, the camera, it, the camera lingers on everything but violence. So we'll see like the kind of grotesque aftermath. Or yeah. there's, a, mm. there's a really horrible scene with someone's hands. Uh, oh yeah. Oh my God. No spoiler. That's so true. <laughs> That's so true. Actually, I never thought about. You don't. You never see the actual. Like you see. You it's, do, but it's not very. It's not like it's brief. It's brief, and yeah. it's or it's in it's in a shadow or yeah, like, or, or, or 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 in a broken mirror. Yeah, or like yeah. it's all. F- it's it, you see glimpses of it. I think. I yeah. think the film. It's like it's like the film is like ashamed that it's violent. It doesn't want to be proud well, like, of its violence. Yeah, like Joe. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, with Taxi Driver, I mean, Travis Bickle is someone who aspires to be violent and thinks. To survive in that this world, is, yeah. in this the New York that I have to see every day, you have to be violent. You have to go outside the law. And that violence is the answer. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, and a lot of films like that, and like Taken, are sold on their violence and how how cool the violence is and how kick-ass Liam Neeson is or something. And mm. yet here, the film's biggest action set piece, if mm. you want to call it that, mm. is filmed entirely through a CCTV camera. Yeah. Like four different shots that it cuts back and forth to. Mm. And that actually makes it really difficult to see what's going on and tell mm-hmm. what's going on. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think Lynn Ramsey wants you to see how cool the violence is. It doesn't want to exactly. sensationalise the violence. Which is, uh, yeah, which is interesting that the detail of that made in the USA shot with a hammer. Mm. Mm. You know, that's an, that's ironic, right? That like, that that he uses that and then she she's trying to say basically that like, oh specifically Hollywood's relationship to I don't know if she's trying to say this but I'm reading this <laughs> like you know the but way that like anyway. yeah. m- you know <laughs> movies and vi- the way violence is portrayed yeah. and like how sort of America in general sort of accepts and justifies a lot of violence yeah. in many ways um, and, and glorifies that I'd say in a lot of Hollywood film that this is the kind of antithesis of that like that kind of Look how horrible this is to say. Not look how cool this is. Yeah, or, I guess. Or look at look at what it does. Look at what it can do. You know how 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 can break you? How can break a person or a society? Or yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's lame. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking that's where it kind of circles back to Taxi Driver, where Travis wants he wants to be a cowboy like so bad. Mm. Uh, kind of just this mythical American hero, mm. and he's kind of. I mean, he gets like he gets a revolver. Yeah. <laughs> he's mm. he's and um, when he's kind of staring in the mirror at himself, and he's like kind of bigging himself up and creating this image. It feels like you were never really here is kind of a deconstruction of that yeah. of what like kind of violent what damage like violence does. It doesn't like well both kind of show that like it's not something aspirational and aspiring to violence is dangerous, mm. um, and how it kind of it can kind of lead to these acts that kind of uh, can shatter both your mind Mm. and the lives of, like, people around you. And it's, like... Destructive. Yeah. And Mm. it kind of... Especially even like down right down to like the structure of the film, it just feels like someone's literally taken a ham taken yeah. a, like a, mm-hmm. a hammer, just like smashed the plot in half. So true. Yeah. And just like there's just fragments. And it's of, put like, together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The fragments of that have been have been put together in this film. Yeah. I like that metaphor. And there's life. so much blood in the film, but you know, you don't really see like in many like entry wounds or anything like that. Yeah. And what's interesting, like there's a lot of like twelve A action films that have a lot of violence but no blood, which is mm. maybe kind of problematic mm. for younger people to not see the consequence of what actually yeah, happens exactly, when, yeah. exactly. when a gun goes off or when exactly. someone gets punched or anything like yeah. that. And this is showing mainly concern about what happens after the gun goes off yeah. or the hammer is, you know, dealt its blow mm-hmm. without actually seeing the blow. And the fact that he uses a hammer rather than a gun, mm. you oh, know, that's being... horrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I feel like Ram- Ramsey has a, a, like a penchant for just focusing in on these, like, uh, like I said before, like these really grotesque details, and one of those is kind of like right at the beginning of the film, just him cleaning the hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like even, exactly. Yeah. Like even with the whole just like, yeah, he's done the job. Now he's getting out of here. Like thing. There's just like this very horrible implication of like just what has yeah. Yeah. gone down. Even if without it's, like, seeing it, even yeah. yeah, it makes it makes violence very difficult, and it's a, it does a really great job of just kind of reconciling with that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it reminds me of something that um, Jonathan Demi said about 
Science of the Lambs. This is the director of Science of the Lambs, who sadly passed away last year. But he said that mm. the the end shootout between Clarice and Buffalo Bill was shot in such a way that he didn't want the audience to cheer mm. when what happens happens. He mm. didn't want them to cheer for someone dying in a film. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the same here. Like in a lot of films, again, it's like set up that you cheer when the good guy kills the bad guy. Right. When, vi- yeah, violence when violence is the answer. Yeah. yeah. I think they want the audience to go, yes, finally, it's the good guys have won. Or yeah. And this is exactly. another example where I don't, she doesn't want you to cheer when no. Joe barges in and does whatever thing. and does his thing because exactly. it's because it's a hideous thing that he's doing. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, we talked a lot about Joe there, but there is also a very interesting supporting cast as well. Mm-hmm. So, Ekaterina Samsonov as Nina, who is the kidnapped girl he sent to to save. His mother is a really interesting character. She's never named. She's just called Joe's mother. She's played by Judith Roberts, who mm-hmm. most people probably recognise from Orange is the New Black. Yeah. That's the one that we thought of the most. Uh, what did you think of their relationship? Stop me from despairing in the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> um it's really interesting that like kind of one of the biggest takeaways from the film is that uh, Joaquin Phoenix is this kind of hulking nightmare creature, but like one of the first interactions he actually had that we actually see him have with a human being is with his elderly mother, mm. and it's just this very warm and kind of yeah. tender thing. Again, he's, he kind of, he tra- transforms just a little bit. He like kind of carries himself more lightly in these scenes mm. where he's just kind of messing around and making references to like psycho of all things and just kind yeah. of. Generally, just kind of um, giving protective and over jokes. her yeah. in a different yeah. kind of a way. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like that he he wears these he wears pajamas. He was yeah. wearing these like very childlike pajamas mm. when uh, the next morning, which mm. I think was interesting. And there's all the, yeah, there's the scene where like she um, uses the shower wrong, he cleans up after her. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a sort of a very pleasant relationship, like the, one well, of the I only think... ones in the film. But yeah. then. She has them. Lynn Ramsey's carefully selected that the mum is watching Psycho when he comes home, and I don't know what that means, but yeah. I mean, dysfunctional. I think during dysfunctional. a yeah, you have a relationship between a mother and a son, and she's chosen yeah. to have the mother watch and then discuss Psycho, which is the ultimate mother-son movie in yeah. many ways. Yeah, I guess like the main thing that I'd kind of take from Psycho being the family film of choice, because <laughs> um, Psycho kind of at its core is about. Um, this is kind of very intense yeah. um, relationship between a, well, a past mother and son. Like, oh, I can't remember the first name of the mother, but Mrs. Bates. I <laughs> remember. Norman uh, kind of kills on behalf of Mrs. Bates, mm. and in this, Joe, uh, it's kind of we kind of led to that. Like Joe's kind of motivation to kind of commit these violent acts is kind of rooted in a number of things, mm. and his relationship with his mother is kind of it's kind of inferred to be a part of that Mm. and we see that what seemingly unrelated images like the hammer drip fed to us like throughout so i feel like psycho i think it's also like making reference to the fact that they've got this connection with each other that's rooted in trauma that they've gone through Mm. something together yeah you know their past um that has linked them in this dysfunctional way i think maybe that's just a reference to the to their sort of connection and their violent history together. Yeah. And the the um, things like the song they sing yeah. together, and um, the cleaning cutlery together, like that's such a yeah, banal thing to be doing. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Polishing the silverware, exactly. Yes. But it's sweet, you know. Like it's, um, and it is a bit of a reprieve from the rest of the film. It's like it gives a you need it quality. You really need yeah, it. that yeah. You're like, oh god, oh, I'm actually human. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, and that real rep- things happen in life. <laughs> and that reprieve comes within the first five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Like, oh god, I need yeah. a breather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. What's great about the film is that it's an hour and twenty-five minutes. Yeah. Which, uh, first of all, more films should be an hour and twenty-five yeah, minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yep. But also, it makes it that much more relentless. I suppose mm-hmm. in everything it does, it it never it doesn't slow down. It doesn't give you Jesus, a chance. Yeah. We're saying it was a nice reprieve, but then after that, it doesn't give you a chance to no. kind of sit back and take a breath. Yeah. It feels like the first drop on a roller coaster, but yeah, forever. yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Much like life, like a roller coaster. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we we've seen the film twice now, and the first time we saw it was a slightly different version of the ultimate one that's being released. That's right, the yeah. Ramsey cut. The Ramsey cut. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a. It's an intense experience, kind of both times. The version that I saw. Uh, last October at London Film Festival was kind of um, 
I wouldn't call it like a rough cut. It was just there was a very small thing missing, and they spruced up the sound the mm. second time around. But I just kind of just because of that, like kind of, you can't call it a minor change because the sound informs the film so much. But it just kind of it's just that slightly yeah. that slight bit more overwhelming uh, this time around. And there's a shot uh, near the end which kind of didn't entirely change the impact of the ending for me, but kind of just. I walked out of it feeling slightly differently to how mm. I did the first time. I'd think for the better. Yeah. And this is a version that everyone will see. It was interesting how much just these tweaks to the sound design and sound mixing, I guess, um, just changed how the film lands like throughout mm. just the uh, the voices. and Yeah. Mm. The sound is phenomenal in this film. So good. Mm-hmm. And not just... The, I mean, the soundtrack by Johnny Greenwood is great, but then there's also... The the, uh, the non-digestic sound as well, like mm. when, when he crushes a uh, like a jelly bean between his fingers, mm. and like you could, the, the sort of the crunching of it, it kind of draws like our attention, like like how you said earlier, how we're being dropped into kind of the psyche of Joe. It mm. kind of, the sound mm. does so much heavy lifting in that, just all of these kind of unimportant like everyday sounds just kind of it just feels like exacerbated, just, yeah. Yeah, it just like feels like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. Mm. And uh, then there's also at the same time kind of these non-diegetic sounds like his own, maybe <laughs> the wax <laughs> own voice combined mm. with just kind of memories um, just by just associated by sound and you're just kind of hearing this like kind of barrage mm. of just noises and like they could be in the background at any point. Sometimes they're just kind of cranked up and then at the same time you just have this completely uh, erratic and atonal soundtrack yeah. by Johnny Greenwood just kind of hammering away yeah and it kind of turns like what might have been maybe I guess I don't know a more I wouldn't call it like a reflect just a reflective thing but it kind of turns it into this kind of very active yeah ongoing nightmare rather than just where it puts us more even more in mm. his shoes than it would have if we mm. were just quietly Can't watching escape him. it yeah yeah it's like kind of all-consuming mm. which makes you empathize yeah. with him so much more like he's doing atrocious things but like you get it, you empathize with him, you know, you get it. You're like, imagine you that was you. Oh God, imagine living in that nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> the sound, yeah, the soundtrack is interesting because there's not there's not much consistency with it. I mean, there is a kind of there's a kind of a theme, but he uses so many different instruments in mm. so many different ways that it's hard to. If you heard it all. You might think it's set various different soundtracks, like on one album, but it's yeah, wh- whatever, whatever the method uh, <laughs> yeah. that uh, got us to this point. It just kind of encompasses all of these different genres, and like, just ma- a lot. Sometimes it just feels like it's like noise. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the, one of the first things we see, and um, well, here is um, just kind of this mess of uh, different guitar noises. Mostly, uh, a lot of them sound like they're kind of out of tune, or yeah. uh, or someone's just kind of bashing it against a wall. And then it'll change like from that one minute into this kind of um, fairly smooth kind of electronic mm. yeah. tune the next. And it kind of it never rests on one point. And I think part of this to me goes hand in hand with uh, Ramsey's kind of uh, inclination to not lead people to specific feelings like rather than uh, instead she lets them kind of take what they will from the film. And this kind of very hard to pin down, not all over the place, but this kind of controlled madness of the soundtrack kind of lets you um, just kind of sink into the film in those moments. So it kind of it kind of creates mm. atmosphere without being over well overbearing, but it's also overwhelming. It's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it is a lot. Lot to take in. Mm. Yeah. So Campbell, you've got a piece of little what lies coming out about Lem Ramsey. I do. I kind of I kind of went through um, her filmography. Yeah. Um, it's just bit, just bit by bit. So it's kind of these capsules, like yeah. investigating what each film does and what it kind of the implications it has on yeah. the rest of our filmography, and it kind of just builds to a point. Okay, uh, it's it's actually kind of a primer for this. Um, <laughs> so it's just kind of a quick way to understand what her particular style like yeah. brings to these films. It's a, there's a very kind of clear connected thread that I okay. just kind of like. And how how do you see this film in like the grand scheme of her so far? quite minimal career she's only made four feature films but she, she feels like she's been around for ages like she's such a name yeah she's How, definitely an yeah. auteur like you can definitely tell that's, that's yeah. a Linda Ramsey film you yeah. know it seems like she's got a person with a very particular vision you and never really hear is very like no different this kind of feels like a very obvious slash on nose thing to say but it's, it just feels like a very much like a culmination of all of her previous work because there's very clear threads like yeah. you could draw a, a straight line maybe 
some squiggles between Ratcatcher and this in kind of its um, willingness to let her camera do the talking mm. and yeah. these very dreamlike images and character building through things as small as editing and just kind of these minute well like interest in the kind of the minutiae of these characters I'd say that you were never really here is just kind of um, she's kind of taken her st- she's taken her style overseas um, <laughs> and <it's> a- yeah <laughs> Which, which didn't quite work out for Jane Got a Gun. No, it didn't. That was a that yeah. was one I completely forgot. I knew there was something that. But I, I think maybe I don't know. Maybe there's a sense that she she had this kind of American genre film that she wanted to explore, and she couldn't quite explore it with Jane Got a Gun. But she's she's found a medium to do so here in this this pulpy thriller. Yeah, I'd say so. It seems that a lot of her work is kind of rooted in these um, literary adaptations. Yeah. And deli- I don't know if it's a deliberate thing, but a lot of the time say her films like kind of transform like this text into just kind of almost directly into feeling like by making these images Mm. out of them i don't know how um, i'm not entirely sure how jane uh jane got a gun would sit in that canon (laughs) but uh there's like her abandoned projects like the lovely bones which also had this through line of grief but um very interested in trauma yeah and the way that that's represented formally in her films, yeah. I think is very interesting. Right, yeah. so that is You Were Never Really Here, which is out on Friday the 9th of March. But if you're staying at home this weekend on Curzon Home Cinema, we have documentary Bombshell, The Hedy Lamar Story. Uh, and also coming to Curzon Home Cinema, we have The Florida Project, which uh, we did a podcast on when it came out a few months ago. Uh, we spoke to Sean Baker and William Defoe, so do check that out on our back catalogue. That was one of your films of the year, wasn't it, Kelly? Yeah, I loved that film. Yeah. I loved that film a lot. Fortunately, Willem Dafoe was not quite successful at the Oscars. I know, but, uh, I know. But that film got snubbed, I'm sorry, <laughs> oh, yeah. in general. Big, time. Big yeah. time. Uh, so yeah, Florida Project, Bombshell, Hadel, Mars Story, but also on Curzon Home Cinema and still available in cinemas is an actual Oscar winner. Uh, that's A Fantastic Woman, which won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, so last week uh, we had the show on that and we spoke to the director, Sebastian Lilio. So go back and check that out. And if you haven't seen the film yet, it's in cinemas and on Curzon Home Cinema. If you have any thoughts on You Were Never Really Here, do let us know by emailing podcast at curzon.com and we'll read out your review on next week's show. If you're a fan of the show, which you can listen to on iTunes and Acast, please subscribe, leave a review and a comment. So Campbell A. Campbell, thank you for appearing in your debut show. Uh, thanks for having me uh, Kelly thank you as ever thank you and goodbye from me as well thank you very much for listening <laughs> <laughs>